0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35 this morning. We survived the tribulation last week. So now we get to enter into the millennium. Isaiah 35. Much of uh, chapter thirty four centers on wrath, destruction, judgment. very bloody chapter. There's a lot of uh, demons in chapter thirty four where uh, we have a haunt uh, that is uh, a part of their uh, sentence during the uh, at the end of the tribulation and throughout the millennial kingdom. This chapter, though, is all good news. We' got ten verses, and uh, they're all happy. The uh, wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus or like the rose of Sharon. I prefer that. I'm kind of partial. Um, if you're reading Song of Solomon, it's the rose of Sharon. If you're reading Isaiah, it's the crocus. And I just, uh, to me, crocus is not as poetic, and, but I digress. All right. It's good news as far as what blooms and what's beautiful. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the Highway of Holiness. All right, that's not (laughs) I-35. That's not 183. All right, that's nothing we have on this earth, let me tell you. But the holy highway that Gaither and some of those guys sing about, it's right here. Okay? The holy highway. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will uh, be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. All right. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the precious promises. We thank you for the blessing that we have to study, to show ourselves approved, and to place these promises, these eschatological prophecies in their proper uh, context, Father, in their proper setting, in the proper application. And I thank you for the perspective of Scripture, the right understanding of the word of God under a literal hermeneutic and under a dispensational approach. Where we understand, Father, that bringing in the kingdom is not our human effort to make it happen. But, Father, it is in your faithfulness that you will send your Son to accomplish what we cannot do. And you did that at first Advent, Father. You sent your Son to accomplish what we could not do, and that is to purchase our redemption on the cross. Likewise, Father, at second Advent, you send your Son to accomplish what we cannot do. We cannot bring about peace on earth. We cannot bring about perfect government, perfect environment. The millennial kingdom is going to come about when when your son ushers it in. And so, Father, I pray that for this hour, you would set aside distractions, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, (coughs) and that, Father, we would be blessed by the truth of your word as it shines forth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Okay. I was doing great until somebody asked me, how are your allergies this morning? (coughs) <coughs> all right. Well, I guess we could say we're done. We've read all ten verses, right? Any questions? There's much more than that. There's a lot we've got to get into, and uh, I want to jump into it. But understand that what we saw last week was the judgment of the tribulation in chapter 34, and then a bridge that carries us across into the uh, millennium, <coughs> into chapter 35. <coughs> all right. And so in verses 16 and 17, at the end of chapter 34, we have this bridge. Seek from the book of the Lord and read. (coughs) And the role that tribulational saints are going to have in the insight of the tribulation to study the things that had previously been sealed away, to study Daniel, to study Ezekiel, to study Revelation, to study the things that had been sealed that are not available to us in the church age and uh, see that not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate, for his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. That God is going to accomplish what God has promised. If there is a promise, it's got a mate, okay? The mate is the fulfillment of that promise. And every single promise he's ever made has a mate, has a fulfillment. God will be true to every promise he's ever given anybody. And... uh, The application there, of course, takes us into a whole lot of different studies. But this is the bridge that then takes us from the tribulation into the millennium, if you will, from chapter 34, verses 1 through 15, and crosses then into chapter 35, where we can see the great things about the coming millennium. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ is going to feature significant agricultural blessings. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ will feature significant agricultural blessings. There are going to be adjustments to the climate, adjustments to the environment. In fact, things are going to be restored back into a similar manner to how they were prior to Noah's flood in, uh, in terms of lifespan, in terms of animal uh, peace instead of animal hostility, uh, in terms of the agricultural production. I believe that much of the judgment upon this earth that took place in Noah's flood is actually undone and reversed for the inauguration of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ because of this passage and other passages where we see the great agricultural abundance. It's as if the, the world is going to become a garden of Eden, uh, as if... Uh, other than, of course, the the demonic zones of, of wrath and destruction we talked about last week, those areas, of course, will still be uh, off limits and, and destroyed. But for the most part, Israel and m- many other places around the world are going to be agricultural uh, booms, as we see here. Things that were previously desert. I wonder what the I wonder what uh, you know Africa is going to be like in the Sahara, right? You know, the, the the Sahara Desert that you know used to be the Sahara Forest and, and whatever. What's it going to be in the Millennial Kingdom? All right, what's it going to be like when he causes the desert to bloom? And these are some of the passages that the modern state of Israel actually quotes today. They believe they have fulfilled many of these passages already through their human efforts since 1948. They believe, and even prior to that, in some of the, the Zionistic uh, settlements that took place uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but that they have caused the desert to bloom. They have brought in irrigation processes and other applications of modern science. Well, let me tell you, they they may claim to have fulfilled these promises, but even they haven't seen anything yet compared to what God is going to bless them with when Jesus Christ himself is seated on the throne of David. And so we have these here, verses 1 and 2 as it discusses it, verses 6 and 7, not only the agriculture but even in the animals with uh, different things. The scorched land will become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. Uh, things that had been haunts will now become places of uh, of refuge. Applications there. The fruit of the earth will be their pride and adornment. It's what they are going to be known for. All right. It is their pride. You know, like I talk about growing up in Washington State, and Washington State is known for rain. All right, apples. All right. And Starbucks, but that's not agricultural, all right? Or Boeing or I mean there's a lot of things. But apples is what I was getting at, thank you. That's why the the it was not an apple tree that Adam and Eve ate in the Garden of Eden. And I I'm sure of that. But think of what they're known for. You know, what is Florida known for? What is what is uh agriculturally now? What is what is Hawaii known for? What are different places known for? Okay? And if if you're not sure, well, then I guess they're not known for much, right? But if everybody knows, I mean, if if you just say something and the first response is, you know, whatever, well, then that's what they're known for. What's Israel known for? Today, it's not their fruit, okay? But it will be. It will be. They're going to be famous for their fruit. Not only is it mentioned here, but we've even had previews of this already back in chapter four, if you might recall, Isaiah chapter four and verse two. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Their pride and their adornment, we read in Isaiah 4 and verse 2. But notice, of the survivors of Israel, they have to go through tribulation first. They have to be purified first. They have to be repentant first. And so it's the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. In chapter 27, there was a reference to this also. In chapter 27 and verse 6, in the days to come Joseph, uh, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. How much fruit do you have to export in order to be the provider for 192 nations uh, on this earth? All right, Do you export to all 192 nations? Or how many there are? Um, to be a fruit exporter to all the nations of this earth. You're going to produce a lot of fruit. And it seems like they're going to have this kind of abundance in their crop yields during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. This also is promised by the prophet Joel. And it's, it's good to turn to these other prophets as well Remember, we don't just take a verse and say, well, this is what it means. We find that the Scripture agrees with Scripture. We find cooperation in cross-references and in parallel passages. We find uh, if if one prophet just says something all by himself, well, where's the confirmation in that? But God gives the confirmation when by the mouth of two or three witnesses all these things can be confirmed. And we learn that Joel is uh, very much in agreement with uh, Isaiah on this point. Joel 2, 21 through 26. And the fun thing about, uh, about this is where it sits because uh, we've got tribulation in this chapter. We've got the sun, moon, and stars going dark. We've got locusts. There's a lot of wrath. Okay, Right in agreement with what we've been studying in Isaiah. Tribulation is on the way. Israel has dark days ahead and it's going to happen once the church departs. When the restrainer is gone there is nothing to stop Satan from going after Israel. So that's the context here in Joel chapter 2. And you'll note uh, they get delivered. Uh, They stop being a byword and a reproach like we see in verse 17. And then in verse 18, "...the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil. You will be satisfied and full with them. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations." See, not even at the end of the millennium, not the Gog Magog rebellion against Israel won't reach the level of reproach that this is. Uh, so verse 21, do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field. And we start to get into the promises here. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and the oil. Anyway, they have promised restoration after the warfare of the coming tribulation. The uh, fruit of the earth will be their pride and their adornment, and the agricultural production is going to be unparalleled. Nothing like it on the earth in that day and age, and really nothing like it ever in the history of the earth. I think when we go back to Leviticus 26, we see it there, even as a, as a promise of the, of the Mosaic covenant, as a promise of Mosaic law in the Torah, is a prophecy related to the abundant and unparalleled agricultural production. Leviticus 26, verses 4 through 6. All of these are promises, and I I find it interesting how Satan hates them, how Satan attacks different things. Satan is very um, militant in the ways that he motivates his servants to do certain things. And and, and part of me puzzles over that. I don't have any answers for you this morning because I'm still chewing on the ideas. But why do they... It seems like there is a segment of our culture... A population within our society—I'll just call them they. I won't name them, but they really, really seem to be caught up in um, aspects of agriculture that that they look at it as a spiritual issue. They look at it as a right or a wrong. That if if you're not organic, if you're not that if and, and so, basically, if you're capitalistic, you're you're wrong, and if you're organic, then well. And I think I can appreciate in part some of the attitudes behind it. In part, I'm not knocking nutrition and in sure, but wait a minute, what what is really motivating here? If if there are agricultural processes that have a yield a hundred times better than an agricultural process that has an inferior yield, what are we really doing? See What are we really doing? And and what I've learned more often than not, I'm going to get off my soapbox here in a minute. What I've learned more often than not is the crowd that's hostile to any modern innovations, any modern processes, they're also hostile to dams or or rerouting rivers or harnessing. They won't admit it, but what they're hostile to is the fact that we have a mandate to have stewardship of this earth and that we are to harness this earth. We are to rule this earth. I love the fact that we can get electricity out of a river. I think that's great. Great. But there's a crowd that wants the river to just leave it alone, be pristine. Be the problem is, if you leave it alone, it's destructive. If you don't harness it, if you don't channel it, if you don't irrigate from it, if you don't build up dikes, okay, water, river dikes, if you don't build up... Um All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox. But it's connected to these prophecies. I've, I, I don't think it's accidental, that God has made agricultural prophecies. And Satan is stepping in to try to counterfeit certain things. He's stepping in trying to deny certain things. He's probably trying to do the same thing with lifespans as well. We'll talk about that when the youth dies at 100. Why is this world so dedicated to trying to expand our lifespan when God's already promised he's going to do that? Okay? The world just wants to get there without God's plan and program is what they want to do. They want to get there themselves. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. Enough of that. Um, and this is 11 o'clock, hour I don't have time for this kind of stuff. We've we got to hurry through this. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. And, and, you know, here is a passage, and maybe it's not often thought of prophetically, as they're receiving the law, and they're, they're receiving the code by which they're going to operate as a nation. But you'll notice these blessings for obedience include weather blessings. And so they're, they're not to be idolaters in verse 1. They're to keep the Sabbath and reverence the sanctuary in verse 2. And if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments to, so, to, so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Notice you want the rain in their season. You don't want rain at the wrong time of year and you don't want the, too much at the wrong time and everything else. Indeed, your threshing will uh, last for you until the grape gathering and the grape gathering will last until the sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. You know what happens when the weather doesn't cooperate and we think we're into spring and we get all the planting done and then here comes a late freeze and it just wrecked everything that you planted. Well, God's in charge of that. Now this is not only how they're going to operate under Mosaic law in the Old Testament but think about it also prophetically how they're going to operate in the millennial kingdom. Because that's when they're truly going to be obedient to the Lord. This is kind of listed as an if. If you walk in my statutes right? Which in the Old Testament was kind of a coin toss. If sometimes they did, most of the time they didn't. In the millennial kingdom though It's an if and it's true. They will walk with the Lord. Israel will be the faithful nation for a thousand years. That boggles the mind. All the Gentiles are going to stand against them, but Israel will be the faithful nation for the thousand years. All right. Jeremiah 31.12. Why is Jeremiah 31 significant? When you think Jeremiah 31, what do you think? Think New Covenant, right? Think um, yeah, boy, you get into Jeremiah 31, that's, that's New Covenant. Well, Jeremiah 31 and verse 12 speaks to this. <clears throat> verse 10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd. And their life will be like watered garden, and they will never languish again. They will never languish again. So anyway, there's the promise there. Ezekiel 36.30, Ezekiel 47.12. I don't want to spend a lot of time with these, but 36.30. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. They will always have an abundance. They will never starve. They will be exporting to all the nations of the earth. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. You know, um, this loathing, this self-loathing, is actually a millennial application for the Jewish people. I believe it's why it only lasts a thousand years. I believe uh, it's just a day in the Lord's timetable, and God brings the loathing to an end and says, All right, enough of that. And he's ready now for the new heavens and new earth and and carries Israel and all the Gentile nations across into the new heavens and the new earth. But the millennial kingdom is a time for Israel to reflect on their past failure and the present grace they don't earn or deserve in the millennial kingdom. Okay? More on that. Just file that away. Self-loathing Jews. Okay? And it's not what you think. It's, It's eschatological. It's prophetic for the millennium. Ezekiel 47 and verse 12. As the tribes are receiving their land grants. And this is kind of fun. By the river, on its bank, on the one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month. I mean, this doesn't just happen today. How often does a tree have a crop? You know, do they, do they get a whole new crop every single month? No. But can you imagine what millennial Israel is going to be like? Every month here's another crop from the same trees. Their leaves will not weather, the fruit will not fail, they will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Their leaves for healing. Okay? Far better than any aloe vera or whatever. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm just going to display my plant ignorance as far as what uh, leaves might be uh, useful for healing. These leaves are going to be useful for healing. All right? And imagine a tree that has a whole new crop of fruit every month. Imagine a nation full of those trees. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ will feature significant medical blessings. Verses 3 through 6a, as I get back now to this chapter. Significant medical blessings. They're not going to need Obamacare in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. They won't need any kind of it. Well, they will, but they're going to have it. It's going to be provided for them. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. You know, the, uh, the healing ministry of Christ was, was indicative of the presence of the Christ on earth. It was the sign and the testimony that the Messiah was walking this earth. Imagine what it's going to be like when the Messiah is ruling this earth, seated on the throne, and his nation is ministering to the Gentile nations in their stewardship capacities. What's the healing going to be like then? So encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. I think it includes not only physical health, but even your mental well-being. Even the the things of of the, the problems of life that leave you emotionally in turmoil take courage. I mean, nowadays we say, take courage. Jesus Christ is in control, right? Yeah. He's in control. Of course he's in control, but there's other human beings that are in office. <laughs> okay. And so I'm, I'm of a divided mind right now, walking by faith and trusting in faith and still seeing this. Well, imagine what, when faith is sight, imagine when Jesus Christ is in control, as he always has been. And when he's seated on the throne of David and ruling this world with perfect government, perfect environment. You think there's a peace of mind there? Talk about common grace where even the unbelievers are going to benefit from having Jesus Christ on David's throne. And so um, the eyes of the blind will be opened. Are we going to have any blind people in the millennium? I don't think so. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap, leap like a deer. That doesn't happen these days. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. You know, much of what is called disease or what's called infirmities is actually demonic. That's why the doctors can't figure it out. But in the millennial kingdom, they're all going to be locked away. They're all going to be banished to their to haunts, their to their no-go zones that Jesus creates. Satan will be in the abyss for the thousand years. The fallen angels, the demons, they're going to be out of operation. That act alone is going to heal a whole lot of folks. All right, so we have it uh, in the description there. Understand, the healing of the sick is indicative of the personal presence of the Messiah. This was part of his testimony in First Advent. It's going to be part of his testimony at Second Advent. It's a part of what the Pharisees couldn't deny. They hated it, I think. Absolutely hated the fact that he was doing all these things, and and they couldn't deny the miracles. So they'd pull their hair out and say, well, what can we do now? (laughs) We can't deny that a miracle's taking place, so how do we shut them up? How do we keep them from preaching this? Psalm 146, verses 7 through 10. Uh, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. We'll have it in just a few more chapters. About six weeks from now, seven weeks from now, we'll be looking at Isaiah 42. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Indicative of the personal presence of the Messiah. You know, if you think about it, fallen humans in a fallen world, (laughs) right? That's us. That's everybody. That's everybody since Adam and Eve fell into sin. You have fallen humans in a fallen world. Mortal bodies in this fallen world. And on the day that Adam and Eve became sinners, he gave them a promise. He said the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. There is provision. It's not, you're not going to do it yourself. Fig leaves do not work. You can't cover your own nakedness. You can't solve your own separation from God the Father. But the seed of the woman is coming. And he's going to solve this whole issue. And so what better sign for this promised coming one, this Messiah, than the one who has the capacity to reverse all of these curses, to heal the sickness, to bring sight to the blind, to, to cause the lame to walk. All right? To multiply the loaves and the fishes, to, even, to walk on water. I mean, even nature itself is subject to the miracles he was granted to perform as the testimony that he is the Christ and no one else, all these posers, all these imposters, false Christs, they don't have the credentials he had. Psalm 146 speaks to this. And also I think (laughs) this recognition helps us to understand that our role is the role of dominion and stewardship It is not the role of bringing in the perfect environment. Christ will do that when he comes. Psalm 146, verses 7 through 10. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, L-Y-R-E, musical instrument, who covers the heavens with clouds. Notice God does this who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him. Those who fear him and those who wait for his loving kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. And it goes on. And anyway, this is what to look forward to. God's the one in charge of this. He maintains this. And the millennial kingdom is going to have this provision unlike anything this world has seen since Adam and Eve fell into sin, since the earth was initially cursed. This will come back again in Isaiah 42, so we can get a preview here of where we'll be in seven weeks. Isaiah 42 speaks to uh, the healing of the sick and the presence of the Christ. you know, it's interesting. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. You know what this chapter is about? This chapter is about Jesus Christ. This chapter is about my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When the, when the heavens opened up and God the Father pronounced, this is him. Okay. The one I was talking about in Isaiah 42. <laughs> My chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. This is the moment where he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It descends upon him like a dove, and he begins his earthly ministry. Isaiah wrote about it 700 years ahead of time. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Notice he didn't. Jesus didn't go all militant in his first advent ministry and start getting politically involved. A bruised reed, he will not break. A dimly burning wick, he will not ex- extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Anyway, look at this, the context for this. Um, verse 5, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it, walk in it. Here's the thing, unbelievers don't even realize the, the common grace they receive. They're breathing God's good air and they're walking on God's good earth and they've got no clue. We'll talk about that this evening in Common Grace. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Who's he talking to here? God the Father is talking to God the Son and the promise of what his incarnation would be like to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. What's this a prophecy of? You know, Jesus quoted this passage. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. Why is idolatry commandment number one? Why does God not tolerate any other God besides him? Why will he not give his glory to another? But he gives his glory to Jesus Christ. Okay. This is significant. This is extraordinary. So, Matthew chapter eleven. Matthew chapter eleven. And here's into the New Testament now. And John the Baptist is in prison. He's about to lose his head. He's going to send a couple of disciples to get some answers. You know, if you know that you've got a week left to live, what's your priority? Doctrine? That was what John the Baptist wanted. He dispatched his... uh, I imagine those guys were hanging out trying to encourage him, trying to minister to him and whatever. He said, get out of here. Go find Jesus. Get these questions answered. I appreciate that. When John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And remember that there were possibilities there could be two Christs. and They, they, they weren't clear. They're reading their prof- prof- prophetic messages. They're seeing, hey, there's a suffering Messiah. There's a reigning Messiah. They struggled. First Peter 1 talks about this. They made careful searches and inquiries seeking to determine what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And so in the Old Testament, they just didn't know. They said, well... There's a suffering Messiah, there's a reigning Messiah. Maybe that's two Messiahs. And then they thought, well, no, maybe it's one Messiah. Maybe he's coming two times. And as much as they studied, they couldn't find the answer. And as much as they inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't give them the answer. The Lord said, revealed to them they weren't serving themselves, but you, the church age, okay, that the answer was going to come later. Later. And so they contented themselves to simply preach the word and not know the totality of how how those two things were going to be reconciled. Here's John the Baptist. He's got a chance now to get his question reconciled, to get his question answered. Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? In other words, is there a second Christ coming to do the, the reigning part since we're fulfilling the suffering part here? And Jesus answered and said to him, does this sound familiar? Go and report to John what you hear and see the blind receive sight the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear goes on to say the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them John the Baptist should have responded to that immediately and clicked with Isaiah 35 the kingdom of heaven is at hand this is the Christ the, the miracles are undeniable testimony all right so healing the sick is indicative of the personal presence of Messiah. The leaves of Israel's trees will have health benefits. And some of this, of course we already read the verse and commented on it, but it's uh, a situation that we're going to see on the new heavens and new earth as well. When the tree of life is replanted, when the water of life is flowing in Revelation 21 and 22, we see this on the new earth. So if you want to add to uh, Ezekiel 47, you can, because it's also featured in... uh, Revelation 22, the river and the tree of life. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. You know, a lot of our hymnology has the crystal sea, right, which is a heavenly setting. But that same crystal capacity of the water is in this river on the new earth. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. See, just like Isaiah said, every month there's a new crop. For the tree of life, it's a different fruit every month. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the health of the nations. And it's not remedial healing so much as it's preventative health for a thousand generations of mortal Adamic humanity walking the new earth and uh, bearing their babies and glorifying Jesus Christ. Man, you guys don't want to go out in the rain, do you? Just stay here and teach an extra two or three hours. All right. Physical death will still take place in the millennium, not on the new earth, but in the millennium, physical death will still take place, but a hundred years of age will be considered youthful. That's why we need these leaves for the healing of the nations. This is why it's a great export product for Israel. They're the only nation that has these kind of trees and these kind of leaves. All right, you think the Gentiles would have an interest in those? Yeah, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so there will still be sickness, there will still be death. That's why they need the the leaves. Even in the new earth, without sickness and death, they will still make use of the leaves. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, even though Adam and Eve were sinless. And that's the provision for their mortal bodies. It's a way for mortality to not die of old age. Let me get back to Isaiah here, Isaiah 65. You know, and of course, obviously, this is why Humans want the, the, that's why Ponce de Leon searched for the water of life and why there's always legends and rumors and mythology and all these things. You know, if you had a, a, a fountain in your backyard and one one glass from that fountain uh, made you 10 years younger, okay, 20 years younger, whatever, you wouldn't want to drink from it too often, right? You would pace yourself, at least I would, I've, I've given this some thought actually, How frequently do you need to eat from the tree of life to regenerate? You know, it's like a Doctor Who regeneration or whatever, but in their mortal bodies, it's for the health of the nations. They kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because they said, if they eat from that tree of life, they're going to live forever as fallen bodies. God said, I can't handle that. But in the new heavens and new earth, they're going to live forever for the thousand generations of, of childbearing that they do there in the new earth. All right, Isaiah sixty five twenty. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. So great uh, benefits to the infant mortality rate. Or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. That's how we know this is not new heavens, new earth. This is millennium. There's still death in the millennium. It's just if they're restored back to the uh, pre-flood lifespans. <coughs> How long did they live before Noah's flood? And then after Noah's flood, they started to diminish. <coughs> All right. So the youth dies at a hundred. <coughs> and everybody says, "Oh, that's so sad." He was so young. He had his whole life in front of him. He was only a hundred. <coughs> ready for that right now? Some somebody at the conference said. Uh, he says, "I, I can't, uh, I can't think of any of the problems I have in my life right now that the rapture won't take care of." <clears throat> All right, the youth will die at a hundred. So think about that. Why was it that uh uh, you know, even the oldest man that ever lived, he topped out at 969, right? Nobody lived a thousand years. I think that's significant. I don't believe anybody's gonna live a thousand years in the millennium. In other words, generation one that crosses over from the tribulation into the millennium, I don't believe any of them are gonna live to the end. Okay? I think their children, Generation 2, will live longer than they did. Generation 3 will live longer than they did. It may be if it goes up on a curve, like it went down on a curve after the flood. Okay? Have you ever studied that? It it decreased on a curve down to the time of of Abraham. Um, Even down to the time of Moses, it still decreased, right? So if it increases on a similar curve, then it may not be until the fourth or fifth generation, then, that we finally have children born who will survive to the end of the thousand-year millennial reign. There will be several generations that die, and that's why there's another resurrection of the great white throne of mostly unbelievers, but also believers that died during the millennium. Okay. Anyway, that's a good uh, contrast there that allows us to distinguish between the new heavens and new earth where there is no more death and the millennium where there is death but it's modified because the, the lifespans are increased and, and uh, the youth dies at 100, but they still die. That's the point. They die at 100 and they still die. There is still physical death in, uh, in the millennial reign. Finally then, <clears throat> this holy highway in verses 8 through 10, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ will feature a highway of holiness. And the exclusive access of this road, is not for everyone. They will not be permitted in the case of human beings who might try or who might want to. And it won't even happen on the part of animals, wild beasts and whatnot. I believe it's in Jerusalem that the lion will lie down with the lamb. It may not be global with animal, uh, in other words, the animal hostility may still exist beyond the boundaries of, of Egypt, or beyond the boundaries of, of Israel. But this highway that goes there will likewise be protected. No lion will be there. You so, say, well, who cares? If a lion lies down with a lamb, who cares if there's a lion there, right? It'd be kind of fun if there was a lion there. If he's, if he's you know, like Fluffy, my kitty cat, then hey, you know, why why who cares if there's a lion on the road? Well, the lion will lie down with the lamb, but... Do we know that's global, or is that limited to the land of promise? Is that limited to Israel and their blessings, like the, some of these other promises? Okay. Nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. So it's a place of safety, and it's also a place of regeneration, because the redeemed will walk there. The ransomed of the Lord will return. This is a road that is only for us. Now, if you think about it, that exists today, but it's, it's, it's a spiritual reality, or it's a metaphor, if you think about it. The Christian way of life, that's a road that's only for us. The path of righteousness, Proverbs 4 talks about, that's a road that's only for us. You and I are on that road. Okay? I, I trust, if you're here this morning, you're on that road. You're under teaching in a local church because you're on that road. You're, on the, you're already on the holy highway. But that's, that's a spiritual reality that we understand in metaphor, we understand in, as a, as a, in typology. But it's going to be very literal on this earth in the millennial kingdom. It will be the highway that takes the Jews to Jerusalem. That's the route of their parade. And there will be a parade, by the way. I believe that unbelievers will be unable to travel along this highway. I think even a carnal believer is going to be ejected off this highway try to walk on that highway when he's out of fellowship, all right? Now, you can sneak in here when you're out of fellowship, and we won't know. You can sit there and grind your teeth and be all carnal and mad, and we won't know, okay? God knows. But on this holy highway, if you're carnal, and you try to step one foot on that highway, oh, I kind of hope to see that. It'd be kind of fun to watch. What happens when a believer out of fellowship takes one step on the highway? You know, how, how spectacular is it when he's flung off the road? I wonder sometimes. But clearly any unbeliever will be unable to travel along this highway. And I believe also carnal believers. I suspect too it's, it's for the humans, it's for the mortals to walk upon. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be, we may, we may, we're going to be like the Lord. I, I don't know what our mode of travel is going to be like. But I do see in the resurrection that he went from Emmaus to Jerusalem. He was popping into the upper room. He was showing up in different places. I, I, I don't believe he was walking everywhere in the resurrection. Okay? So I expect there's some kind of dimensional something, flight or teleportation or something. Okay, Something else I put some thought into. The, uh, but this road and this parade on this road that no unbeliever is going to be allowed to walk on I believe this is going to be the road that they parade along from the location of their wilderness judgment. Ezekiel 20 talks about the nation being brought into a wilderness judgment. Are you familiar with this? Ezekiel chapter 20. Because, you know, God is so brilliant in everything that he does and all the promises that he makes, including promises that sometimes we look at those and say, well, that's contradictory. How can that be true? How can it be that he regathers every Jewish person from the face of the earth? And how can it be that only believers go into the land? Because there's going to be a lot of Jewish people that aren't believers. How can he gather all the Jewish people and how can only believers enter into the land? Well, they're both true. And the reason why they're both true is because he gathers all the Jewish people and he removes the unbelievers. This is the wilderness judgment of Israel. And we read about it. it. It shouldn't be a shock or a secret because it, it says so right here. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Now, as I live, he takes a vow and he connects this promise with his own eternal life. Remember, this is, the God who cannot lie takes a vow. And the God who cannot die stakes his life on it. To me, that's that's just powerful. As I live, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. And so his promises are true. Every Jewish person will be gathered from the four corners of the earth but not all of them are going to enter into Jerusalem. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. See, what did he do when he brought them through the Red Sea? Did he just take them straight up to the land flowing with milk and honey? He took them down to Sinai, didn't he? He entered into judgment with them. He handed them Mosaic law. He's going to enter into judgment with Israel. After Armageddon, he's going to bring them into the wilderness judgment. He's not going to hand them Mosaic law, he's going to hand them kingdom law. He's going to execute the unbelievers. And then he's going to lead the parade, the march on the holy highway up to Jerusalem. He says, As I entered into judgment, and the parallel with the Exodus is critical because it's it's a theme that's also in Isaiah. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Remember when he died on the cross? What did he say? When he gave the first communion, what did he say? He says, this is the blood of the new covenant which was given for you. When has Israel been brought under the covenant? The blood was shed on the cross. But when was it applied to the nation of Israel? It has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. Not until he takes them to this wilderness judgment. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And you think about the Exodus generation that they came out of Egypt they didn't go into Canaan, all right, other than Caleb and Joshua, right? It, but this is what we're going to see, the second advent of Jesus Christ. Every Jewish person on the planet gets brought into the Valley of Judgment. And the, un, and the unbelievers are executed. Only believers enter the Millennial Kingdom. All right. Something similar happens with the Gentiles. It's uh, called the sheep and goat judgment. And uh, sheep... Believing Gentiles get to enter the millennium. Goats, unbelieving, Gentiles do not. This millennial highway is likened to the pathway God made for Israel through the Red Sea. It's even brought up again in Isaiah 51, verses 10 and 11. This millennial highway is likened to the pathway God made for Israel through the Red Sea. So we'll see this again when we get to uh, Isaiah 51. I'm just out of time. Isaiah 51. <clears throat> awake, awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Remember, it's with arm stretched out and a mighty arm. Okay. As in the days of old, in generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Okay, that's Egypt. That's not the Jericho harlot. That's Egypt. That's Satan. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Notice, it's a pathway for the redeemed. So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In other words, it's a restating of what we have today in Isaiah 35. It comes back again in Isaiah 51, and it links it to the parting of the Red Sea. What was God doing when he redeemed Israel out of Egypt? Well, what's he going to do when he brings all the Jews from the four corners of the earth and inaugurates his millennial kingdom? There is a good article on this. I'll have to close with this. Um, Schaefer Seminary Journal has a good article on Isaiah 35. If you have the journals in your Logos software, you can pull it up. They also have the content of these journals on the website. So if you search for Schaefer Seminary Journal, You're looking for Volume 8, Number 2, and uh, you can read some more on it, and you'll have some fun. Robert Asher is the author's name, Isaiah 35, Exposition in Biblical Theology, and a lot of what I didn't have time to go into this morning, you're going to have there, okay? And it's, uh, as an extra bonus, when you finish reading that article, you get down to the bottom of that article. And then uh, the very next one in the very same volume <laughs> is mine. My singular academic entry into the world of theological journals. And so it just so happened. That's why it was nagging me. It was nagging me. It was in the back of my mind all week long thinking, I have an article somewhere on Isaiah 35, don't I? Yeah. Yeah in the Schaefer journal in Schaefer journal volume 8 so anyway i recommend it read robert asher's stuff and uh, take a look at that then you can read the ezekiel stuff in the next article it's on animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom why do they have animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom if jesus christ himself is uh, is died on the cross isn't he the end of the law for all who believe why are we why are we butchering animals again in the millennial kingdom so you have more homework to do there, too. We'll come back next week and begin Isaiah 36, and we'll have some fun with it, because 36, 37, and 38 is a narrative. It's a story. It's uh, events in the life of Isaiah and how he uh, came alongside King Hezekiah. And uh, we have parallel here, 36, 37, 38. Uh, it's, it's largely parallel to Second to Kings, all right? And so we can go to Second Kings and read the story kind of from the king's point of view, we can go to Isaiah and read the story, same story, from the prophet's point of view, from the from the viewpoint of Isaiah who ministered to the king during uh, the time of his struggle. And the more we read about it, when we see Hezekiah and all of his fears, and we see the influence and blessing that I, that Isaiah was. My prayer is that God would send an Isaiah to our governor, to our president, to our mayor, you know, put believers with doctrine in places of influence where they can Council political leaders that uh that need it all right in every uh in every way, so we'll start that next week and and uh, we got three weeks of that coming up thirty six thirty seven thirty eight are uh good chapters for that here in the book of Isaiah Father, thank you for your faithfulness, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. And it's fun, Father, to think about this coming millennium. Uh, But, Father, we realize that the millennium is preceded by the tribulation. The tribulation is preceded by the rapture. We're living our lives now in the church, day by day, moment by moment, listening for the Lord himself to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And, Father, that trumpet can sound today. I ask that it does come today. But in the meantime, Father... Uh, so long as you delay, so long as you 're grace, grace uh, gracious and merciful, then father we 've got friends and family members, loved ones, neighbors, enemies there 's no shortage of folks, Father, that we know personally that uh, Father, if the trumpet was to sound right now, they would not be snatched up with us in the clouds they would be they would be remaining on this earth, they would be left behind, Father, left behind to face the unrestrained, merciless wrath of Satan and his Antichrist. So, Father, I pray that you would motivate our evangelism, that you would motivate our fervency. Father, uh, be at work in and through us for your good pleasure. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.